And um, we are on part four of the Saints of Agar. At the top it says part three. So you can scratch that and write part four. <clears throat> and um, we've now come to the second half of Agar's Saints. And we've worked through his autobiography in the first three sections, verses <laughs> one through nine. And so now we're prepared, prepared to hear Agor's numbered sayings. If you're familiar with Agor, if you read it before, he's the guy that likes to say three things, yea, four. Or four things, three things, yea, four. He loves his numbers. And uh, it's very poetic. And we're going we're gonna to see that. Um, before we study um, sort of this chapter in, in detail, I want to see how this chapter is organized, how it's put together. And really the first thing I want you to come away seeing is just how artistic it is. It is a, it's a masterpiece. Uh, this guy didn't just write this when he was, you know, um, half thinking. Uh, this is very skillful. Um, so there's a beauty element to the scriptures. Uh, we come to enjoy them. Um, obviously, that's not the only thing. It's it's truth, and um, that's the other reason why we want to see the structure. Because God did not just inspire content; He inspired the way the content is delivered. He inspired the whole structure. He inspired the. The, the whole package. And so we want to see the, the whole thing. Um, and we've said from the beginning that before you can really see and understand what a text is saying, you need to know how it is saying. You need to see how it's organized, how it's communicating what it's communicating. And then you'll really get the big big picture. Um, if you've read the, the Saints of Agra before, you probably see his numbered saints, three things, yea, four, and he gives maybe four things. And the beauty of it is that those sayings can stand alone. They're, they're, they're a beautiful picture that can stand by on their own. And yet they're part of a larger whole. And when you see it with the larger whole, it's much richer and much fuller. Um, so you've probably seen these pictures before that it's, it's, it's a picture. Last one I saw was a picture of the Statue of Liberty. But when you get close, it's made up of all these little pictures. Have you seen those before? Uh, and you look close, and it's you know all these totally unrelated pictures. Um, that's sort of what's going on here. They're, they're, there's many little sections. They're beautiful. They stand on their own, but together they, they make a, a beautiful portrait um, and, a, and one complete message that's being given to us. So um, I invite you to turn to the back of your uh, outline, the second page. And I have laid out, um, this is from the NIV, just copied it, um, but sort of put it in how I think the organization of these sayings are put together. And like I said, it's, it's very masterful, very artistic. And you see there are seven numerical sayings. Well, why is that significant? Well, you know, seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. Um, so just the seven alone is um, very intentional. So let me read it, and I'll make comments as, as we go. So we keep in mind the whole introduction, first nine verses that we've talked through, and then we come to verse 10. It begins with a single line proverb. Do not slander a servant to their master, or they will curse you, and you will pay for it. And then following that, we get three numerical sayings. What's significant about three, these three numerical sayings is they do not have a number that is introducing them at the beginning of the verse. So the, the second four, look down below verse 17, they all have a number, three things, three things, four, four things, three things, four. They head off the verse, but these three are three numerical sayings, but they don't have a number. 
Right? It's very intentional, um, and yet they're very clearly numerical saints. So, verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are pure in their own eyes and yet not cleansed from their filth. There are those uh, whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are ever so disdainful. Those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from all mankind. Second numerical saying, the leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. Then we get another single line proverb which introduces the second set of four numerical sayings. The eye that mocks a father and scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Then we get this second set of four numerical sayings, but each of these now begin with a number. Three things, four, or four things. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky and the way of a snake on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king and a godless fool who gets plenty to eat. A contemptible woman who gets married and a servant who displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small and yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, and yet they store up their food in summer. Hyraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught in the hand, yet it is found in the king's palaces. There are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing. A lion mighty among beasts who retreats before nothing. A strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king secure against revolt. If you've been playing the fool and exalting yourself, or if you plan evil, clap your hand over your mouth. For as churning cream produces butter and twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. So that's his, that's his sayings. And one more thing I want to put, point out to you is look at the structure. He gives you three numerical sayings. And then four numerical sayings. Well, why is that interesting? Well, that follows the same pattern. That he always says three things, yay, four. And so his whole structure is according to the three things, yay, four. So I just want you to see this is just very intentionally put together. It's a masterpiece in how he thought through, um, through all this. And it's also very significant in how we are going to understand what he is communicating. So this morning, we are just going to be looking at the first three numerical sayings. So the single verse... In verse 10, and then three numerical sayings through verse 16. Um, I love Agar. Uh, he's uh, very profound um, and just <coughs> very, very poetic at the same time. So how should we summarize Agar's main point? What is he getting at in these sayings? I think he summarizes it for us in verse 32 to 33. Look at it again. It says, if you have been foolish, if you've been playing the fool, exalting yourself. Or if you've been devising evil. All of these are warnings against self-exaltation. Warnings against greed. 
warnings against upsetting the social order, upsetting authority structures, exalting yourself sinfully, self-promotion. These are all admonitions to Ithiel, his son, and to us to live lives of contentment and modesty. Not to pursue sinful self-exaltation, which would overthrow authority structures that God has put into place. Their encouragement to live modest lives and to be content with being a simple, humble, lowly, faithful, godly, wise person. The first three numerical sayings that we're going to see this morning are there to curb greedy appetites. Which would lead us to sin, which would lead us to overthrow authority, and which would lead us to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. And the second four numerical sayings are given in order to highlight the evils and dangers of turning society on its head, of self-exaltation, of abusing power, and of disrespecting authority. And then it gives us the proper pathway to true greatness, which is humility, lowliness. Contentment. Very needed in our culture, wouldn't you say? Well, before we dive in um, to this passage, do you remember what Agra's sayings were called? What did he call his sayings in verse 1? They are a what? Yes. An oracle. Excellent. And we noted that that means an inspired utterance. So this is inspired, but it also means a prophetic burden, and it's almost always a judgment oracle. Well, where is the judgment in this passage? Well, the judgment is in the two single-line Proverbs, verse 10 and verse 17. And both of them emphasize the judgment that will come on one whose life is dictated by greed and upsetting the social moral order that God has put into place. So, really quick, I just want to emphasize how important the first nine verses are for this autobiography. Um, They're the prerequisite. So, if you think back, the first nine verses first emphasize the distrust that we should place in our own, what? Our own knowledge. We're finite and we're depraved. We have to have God's word. And it emphasized the distrust we need to have in our own hearts. Prone to wander, prone to trust anything other than God. And so you have to get the first nine verses or you're going to miss the rest of the sayings. They're also there to highlight what's going to protect you is a craving for God's glory more than a craving for wealth. A craving for God's glory more than a craving for your own needs being met. Even. So you have to come to verses one to nine. It has to be cultivated in life, alive in your heart. And the next thing is, uh, what did we see last week? What was um, the point last week? Do you remember? It was Agra's what? It was his, his prayer, right? That's the point. You have to be people of prayer. That is going to be the safeguard. person who prays, Father, hallowed be your name. We saw that his prayer is very similar to Jesus and the Lord's prayer. Glorify your name. Provide my daily bread, but don't give me too much. Lead me not into temptation. Complete dependence on God's word for guidance and complete dependence on God's character for protection. That is how you're going to be spared all the dangers that are going to come. So you got to get the first nine verses. And now we're ready for his sayings. So if you will look at verses 10 through 16, we get three numerical sayings. And these sayings all warn against the folly 
of greed. The folly of greed. Look at verse 10. This is the greedy pursuit is condemned. It says, Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Agur admonishes Ithiel here not to slander. Now, we've already seen slander in the book of Proverbs. We did a big study on slander, and we've always seen it. it uses malicious words in order to do what? To destroy another person. Well, why would I do that? It's for self-promotion, self-advancement, greedy gain. It's always the driving motive in slander. Um, this also sort of connects us back to Agur's first request. What was his first prayer request? Do you remember? It was, remove far from me. Falsehood and lying. Well, that connects to slander, right? Slander is almost always mixed with exaggeration and adding to the details to take somebody out. So you see that the prayer is so essential here to protect you from, from this danger. So he's warning Ithiel about slander, and he's commanded not to slander a servant. Um, the word here is literally a slave, a person who has a master. And uh, slavery at that time, uh, as you know, is not... It's kind of evil slavery we know in our culture, kidnap slavery. This is indentured slavery. It's a form of justice, actually, in the society. It's a way to repay your debts. Um, and yet even that was very regulated by the law. It was for six years, and it was to be generously rewarded by the master. But the point is that a slave was at the will of his master. He didn't have um, a lot of rights and liberties of, of his own so uh, Agur commands that you don't slander a slave to his master. Um, the whole context of Agur's sayings make us think that Agur and probably Ithiel were officials in a king's court, um, royal officials in some way. So a slave here could even refer to an, an official, uh, maybe even a fellow official, a fellow servant with Ithiel. So that's important because it seems that the idea now is Agur's telling Ithiel, don't slander a slave, a fellow servant, a fellow official to his lord, to his master. Well, why would Ithiel do that? Why would he be tempted to do that? Well, it seems pretty clear. You speak a bad word about Joe over here and he loses his job. He loses his position. He gets fired. He gets demoted, whatever it is, and you can, you can climb the ladder pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, it seems pretty much what it feels being tempted towards it by the uh, conclusion. If you've been playing the fool and exalting yourself. Greed will drive you to advance yourself at the expense of others, is what um, Agra is saying. What is the judgment here? Look at the certain consequence for slander. It says, lest he, that is the slave, curse you and you be held guilty. That's liable to judgment. If a slave was wrongfully slandered, he would have no ability really to press charges. He was at the will of his master. If his master bought into it, there's not a lot of place he can go. And so he resorts to a curse. Uh, a curse is a, uh, an appeal to the Lord and an expressed desire for judgment to fall. Bruce Walkie said that the slave or official resorts to a curse because he feels that he has no other recourse to defend himself in court. This is only option, is, is what it means. The word is the same used for the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy. It means divine judgment. But a curse has no power in itself. 
You remember Balaam was sent to curse Israel, but it was unsuccessful. He said, you can't curse successfully those whom God has blessed, right? So curse doesn't have power. But look here, it says that you will be held guilty, implying that it's God that's bringing the judgment here. Proverbs 26.2 says, the curse that is causeless does not alight. It doesn't come to rest. It doesn't come to pass. But here it comes to pass. In other words, God is responding. This person's been wronged, he's crying out to God, and God is responding to judgment. That is the, that's the warning. Um, Derek Kinder said it like this, he says, If the servant is innocent, his curse will count, for there is a judge. So that's the warning. Reject slander for self-promotion. And now, we're ready for the numerical saints. All three of these numerical saints are given to expose the greedy heart. And to show us the evils of greed and the dangers of greed and to avoid it um, with all of our power. So first, in verses 11 to 14, we get the greedy generation. Um, we don't get a number, but we get this repeated word. In Hebrew, it's just one word. It's the word dor. It means a generation. So it says a generation, a generation. Uh, if you have the King James, they get it the most literal. They say, there is a generation. Who? There is a generation. Who? Um, it refers to a certain kind of people. Does it mean a certain time period? It means a certain class of people. It's not given us four different generations. It's given us one generation that's characterized in these four ways. So this is the greedy generation that is exposed here. It's a greedy generation exposed. This exposure is meant to show us the reprehensible nature of those driven by greed. We're meant to come away from this with absolute disgust. It shows us how greed works. It shows us the destruction it brings and ultimately where it comes from. So first notice, I have it in your outline, how this unfolds in an ABBA pattern. Again, this is, this is poetry. It's a poetic device, but it's important for you to see so you can see the meaning, okay? So the outer frame, 11 and 14, highlight... Um, those who overturn the moral structure of authority in the home, they dishonor their parents. We're going to see it's for greedy gain. And then down in verse 14, they overthrow the moral structure of society. They abuse power on the weak. The greedy prey on the weak and vulnerable, whether it's those who are superior to them, parents, or those who are inferior to them, the poor and the needy. And then the inner frame, the two A's, I mean the two B's, show us where this hard attitude comes from. It comes from gross hypocrisy, and it comes from an arrogant heart. So you see the core is showing us the source, where it's coming from, and then the outer frame showing us what it produces, what it looks like, this greedy generation. So let, let's go through it really quick. Verse 11 says, there is a generation who curse their fathers. Now, where have we seen this word curse? We saw it right back in verse 10. We just saw it, right? The curse is an expression and a wish for judgment to fall prematurely on the parents. It's a person who curses the father. Why would he curse him? So that his dad would die early is the idea. They curse the parents so they could die and they could inherit the inheritance early. It's greedy. It's sinful. Look over at Proverbs chapter 20. Very similar thought is given here. Proverbs 20, verse 20. Proverbs 
Proverbs 20, verse 20. It says, if one curses his father or his mother, same um, idea, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. So if he goes after his parents' premature death, it's going to come on him. <laughs> He's going to be taken out. And look at the next verse, verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. I think these two verses are put together. Why would the inheritance be gained hastily? Well, it's because the wicked son hurried the inheritance along by desiring and promoting the death of his parents. So this is just the opposite of honoring your father and mother. It's just cursing them for a selfish ambition. It's overthrowing the authority structure of the whole. Superiors would be honored, not cursed. Uh, but that, that's what greed drives one to do. Children owe their very life to their parents. And so it's just perversity. They're going after their death rather than their well-being. And that's what the next line says. They do not bless their mothers. They don't pray to God for his blessing of health and well-being on they're greedy. Um, and this sin was judged by the death penalty in the Old Covenant. Uh, both Leviticus and Exodus says anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. It's a high offense. So this generation, greedy generation, will curse their parents in the hopes that they can profit. Overthrow um, authority in the home for selfish gain. Now look at verse 12. It's a very graphic verse. We're now zooming into where does this kind of heart come from? What, what kind of heart is this? It reads literally, there is, there is a generation who is clean or pure in their own eyes. And it's literally, they have not been washed from their excrement. It's a disgusting word. Uh, they're filthy. It can refer to either excrement or vomit in certain contexts. So it's just putrid, um, this word. Uh, it's something disgusting, and it, it would render one unclean in the old covenant, covenant before the Lord. You could not approach the Lord in this way. And the irony, this person's covered in it, and he's saying, I'm clean, um, is the idea. Um, they reckon themselves clean, able to appear before the Lord, um, and yet they're reprehensible to him. Notice, it says they're clean in their own eyes. Well, why is that? I would say it's because they haven't submitted to verses 1 through 6, right? They haven't bowed to the word of the Lord. They don't have that guiding them in their values. They don't have the, the word exposing their hearts. And so they're, they're clean. Hey, I'm clean. It's not a big deal. I'm fine. So how can this be the case? How can be, people be so deluded? From the word pure, clean, I think it makes us think back to the ceremonial washings under the Old Covenant. They've done the ritual. They've gone through the ceremony. They've done the washing, and they say, I am clean, acceptable to the Lord. All the while, they have the excrement of greed all over their hearts. They haven't dealt with the heart. And people still do this today. We don't have the Old Covenant washings. But how easy it is to belittle or excuse Sin patterns, desires, evil in my heart on the basis that I've done the religious thing. I've, I went to church. I gave God what he wanted. I did my devotions this morning. I've prayed. Um, I've trusted him. Yeah, I believe Jesus. That's great. And I sing to him. I, I gave my tithe. <laughs> so it's okay if I indulge over here. Over and over the Old Testament says it is not acceptable. That's what the Pharisees were. They, they, they cultivated sin in their life. They didn't have any repentance. And yet they were perfectly in line with the externals. The externals are important. 
but can't be separated from the heart. So this person is is deluded. He's a hypocrite. You know, Mike, uh, so yeah. you know, Matthew 23, where yep. Jesus uh, gives the woes to the Pharisees mm-hmm. and uh, calls them the whitewashed tombs. Yep. That's right. And what's very interesting is the Pharisees are characterized by greed. They love money. And so I wonder if Jesus didn't have some of these thoughts in his his mind, his verse here. Um, Say they're clean, and yet covered in filth. So that's where it comes from. It comes from gross hypocrisy, this greedy heart, uh, this greedy life. Let's look at verse 13. It goes hand in hand with verse 12. It gives us the flip side of the coin. Why are these people so blind? Well, it's because they are so arrogant. They have such a high, lofty view of themselves. Though these are those who are a generation, oh, how lofty their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. They have a high opinion of themselves. It blinds them to their own sin, and it devalues the life of others. They don't care about their parents. They don't care about the lives of the need. It doesn't matter. People exist for me. It's about me. And of course I'm not wrong. What do you mean? I can be wrong. It's a high lofty view of self. And that comes from, again, verses 1 through 9 not being submitted to. I don't have a heart that craves the Lord, that fears the Lord. A knowledge of the Holy One. That's the only remedy to this. Derek Kinder again said, at all events in verses 11 to 14, pride is seen corrupting a person's attitude toward his superiors, himself, the world at large, and his inferiors. His pride began by exalting himself above God's word in verses 5 and 6, and exalting himself above God's name in verse 7 and 9, and then it only grows and grows and grows. you got to bow to God's word. you got to bow to God's name to be protected. Finally, verse 14 gives us another graphic verse. It says, There is a generation whose teeth are swords and whose fangs are literally butcher knives. This word is a butcher knife. It's always used for chopping up an animal. Um, again, it's very graphic. To devour, in order to gobble up the poor out of the land and needy from mankind. Their teeth and their fangs represent malicious speech. Well, where do we say malicious speech? Verse 10, slander, right? It's like a butcher knife to do what? To destroy the life of others to do what? Help me. So you see, this person driven by greed is willing to turn a society on its head to abuse power, to reject authority, to promote itself, and it's all coming from gross hypocrisy and a high lofty view of self. And Agur says, pray. Verses 7 to 9, pray. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Give me neither poverty nor riches. This has to be our heart if you're going to be protected. Well, let's move on to the next saying. I want to have enough time just for uh, some conversation at the end. Uh, if you were there in our men's group yesterday, I told, told you we were going to be talking about leeches this morning. So here we go. Verse 15a is the second numerical saying, the greedy leech. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Or it could be give, give, they cry. Um, there's no number in this line, again. Um, but notice the escalation. It moves from one leech to two leeches. It's another numerical saying. And as you know, a leech attaches itself to a body in order to gorge itself on the lifeblood of another. Now, who here has seen a leech in person, touched a leech? Anyone? All right, a few of y'all. Yeah, okay. Naomi has. Naomi used to play with leeches when she was little. 
So she said you would hit them and they'd fall up in a little ball. So while her parents were in the rice field, that's what she was doing. So, um, so I've never seen a leech. So I did some research on leeches yesterday. And pretty, pretty gross. Um, but a leech is a parasite. It lives and it exists by feeding on another. It's gross. You don't want parasites on you. Its existence depends on taking. That's why it's always saying, give, 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 give. It's all about give, give. It's not about um, pouring out to, to others. It's a perfect picture of a greedy person. He's a taker of life and not a giver. You know, you have to say, you know, he's leeching off. Yeah, yeah, we still say that today. Yep, yep, that's right. That's right. It still carries the same idea. He's a, he's a person all about himself, self consumed. It's all about receiving and not. Give it out. So, yeah. I know in olden times before they actually knew about their medicine, mm-hmm. they would use leeches. If someone yep. had fever or was sick, they would use it because they thought it was sucking the band blood out of yep. the fever. Yep, that's right. all it ended up doing was bleeding a person to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're gross creatures if you, if you look at them. Mm-hmm. But uh, would not want that uh, process done to me. So, um, First thing I, I asked myself when I was thinking through this is, am I more concerned with what I can get from others out of my personal relationships than what I can give? Simple, but do I? In my interpersonal relationships, in my family, um, am I a fountain or am I a drain? Am I a, a sucker? Or am I, do I seek to pour out and give and promote? And I see I'm a lot like the leech in many places. Naomi was talking to me the other day. Point out an area where just self focused. Um, am I like the leech? Give, give. It's all about self. The two daughters, what are these two daughters? Um, it's debated. Some people think it refers to the two sucking organs on a leech's body the one on the posterior, which attaches itself to your body, and the one on the anterior, which sucks the blood. Possible. Um, I think it refers to leech's multiplication. The one leech, not the death, soon becomes two leeches. It gets birth, it grows, it multiplies. Um, I think the point is that if it's not killed, it soon grows in number. Um, and the same is true of greed. If it's not immediately put to death, it will grow. And he's warning them immediately. I mean, what do you do with a leech? If it's on you, you don't look at it and pet it and say, cute little leech, what do you do? You get it off of you. Um, and I think that's how he ends. Look at verse 32 again. He says, if you've been playing the fool exalting yourself, shut up, is basically what he's saying. Put your hand on the mouth. Cut it out now. Um, you don't play around with leeches. You, you remove it immediately. And I think that's the, that's the idea. If you don't put it to death now, it will multiply. Um, which I think is what the next numerical saying is going to highlight for us. Just as a person responds to a leech with immediate repulsion and removal, that's how we should respond to greed in our lives. It's continually saying, give, give. It's not easily removed. It's not easily satisfied. Um, apparently, to remove it, you got to pry its little mouth off. People say sprinkle it with salt. I think there's medical problems with that, dangers, but the uh, point is, is they don't come off easily. Um, you got to uh, you got to work at it. The same is true with, with greed. you got to fight it. Um, number three. Look at the third numerical saying. Four insatiables. There are four insatiables. Four things never satisfied. Verse 15b. 
Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. So we do get a number here, but notice it does not come at the beginning of a verse. And while verse numbers are not in the original, the length of the verses are. Uh, things are very symmetrical in Hebrew poetry. And the first, leech, line is very short on purpose to keep this one from being uh, the initial of the line. So, again, technical, but just want to show you the, the, the intentionality Agor is doing here to craft his, uh, his poem. Um, again, we get this three, yay, four formula. And you've probably seen it, and it might be a little confusing what's going on here. Are there three things or are there four things? Um, it's a poetic device, and it's meant to build intensity. That's what's going on. So when you hear three things, yay, four, the real number is always four. It's four. Okay? Um, that's what he is, he's doing. So he gives us four things that are never satisfied and four never say enough. And the point is to illustrate and warn against greed. Yeah. That's a good question. And it actually is very helpful for uh, when you're reading Hebrew poetry, you know they're parallel. The second line almost always escalates the first line. So you read the first line, it gives the truth, and the second line intensifies it or gives a bigger contrast or something. And so it's going along that pattern. It gives three things, and he says, and not just three, there's four. It's a way to intensify this. Really, it's big. It's important. Pay attention. So does that make sense? So just remember the number's four. It's poetry. Um, this word satisfied is the same word we saw in the prayer. Verse 9, lest I be satisfied. It means sated, filled with abundance. Um, he gives us here four realities in life that are never full of abundance. They're never satisfied. They always want more. And the point here is that the craving for wealth is never satisfied. The desire to be rich and wealthy will always want more. The more you get, the more you will want. It's how greed works. Bruce Walke said, These four insatiables cannot be avoided or eliminated, but the son disciple can take precautions from becoming like them, like the insatiable leech. So let me look at these really quickly with you. What's the first on the list? What is the first insatiable, the first thing that's not satisfied? It is? It's the grave. It's the grave. Sheol means death. Um, death is never satisfied. There's always room for another dead person. It never gets to the point where it says, okay, I'm, I'm full. I don't, I'm not going to claim any more lives. Interesting, Proverbs 27, 20 makes a connection between greed and death. It says, death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. Man, is just as greedy as death and destruction. It's interesting because it usually leads to death and destruction. You know, you don't like that. The grave is the... One of the key points of the fall. It is. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's good. Yep. And yet we're going to see there's there's hope of life um, in this passage. So you um, just look at the very next line. What is it? So you have death, but you also have the what? The barren womb, right? The closed womb. So while Sheol is craving for death, the barren womb craves for what? It craves for life, to give birth. It's never satisfied until it gives birth to a child. What's next on the line, on the list? You have the land, the dry, arid land of Israel is never satisfied with water. It never gets enough water. 
It never gets too much to produce an abundant crop of fruitfulness. Like the barren womb, it craves for what? For life. And then finally, to finish the frame, we get what? We get fire. And fire is what? It craves to destroy and consume. So you have death, life, life, death. So the barren womb craves to give life, and the shale craves to take life. And the land craves to produce abundance, and the fire craves to destroy the abundance. So now what's the point? That's the question. So you come to Agra sayings, especially these numbered sayings, and you come away saying, okay, great. <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> what do you think? Before you look at your outline, what do you think? What, what, what is the... Uh, what is he getting at here with these four insatiable things in the contrast between death and life? Yeah. I think he's teaching us that we should we need to be content with the little that we know. Mm-hmm. And even though a woman may want a child, she should be content with the fact that maybe God's not giving her a child because mm-hmm. she might be able to take care of it or whatever. The land, I'm not sure how land would be grateful for anything, but. Sure. Yeah, good. So it fits the overall theme of just yeah, contentment and not constantly driving after not being satisfied. Good. Anything else? Any other ideas? We got basically out of time. Let me just read it really quick. Um, the couple points I make, um, people differ on their application. This is what I think it, it means. First is obviously man's greed and craving for wealth is never satisfied, just like these four insatiable things. Think about fire. You do not control fire by feeding it. No one in here thinks that they can cause a fire to die down by satisfying its craving, right? In fact, the more you feed it, what happens? The larger and the stronger it grows. And the same is true of our sinful lusts and desires, whether it's greed or anything else. And the deceit of sin is to say, if you just feed it, if you feed me, it will be satisfied and it won't. It grows stronger and larger the more you feed. And the point is to put it to death. Now, remove it just like the leech. Submit yourself to God's word and to prayer. Like verse 7 to 9. Be killing sinner, it will be killing you, says John. The second point to see in the structure, comparing death and life. And I think the point is that we can either be controlled by insatiable desire for sin, and sinful cravings and appetites like greed, and it will lead to death. Or we can have another insatiable appetite, and that is for life. It's for righteousness, it's for godliness, it's for wisdom and contentment, which brings life to others. Um, where does that come from? It comes from a desire for the glory of God. Verses 7 through 9, it comes from a desire to be kept from sin. Bruce Walkie said, until God separates the weak from the chaff, greedy tyrants will never say enough, and the righteous ever strives to produce life. So by application, yeah, just like you feed the fire, it grows. The more you feed your righteous desires, the more they will grow. Pursue godliness. Pursue wisdom. Contentment. And these desires will grow as well. This is beauty. It's beautiful. Um, Agar is very profound. And uh, it's calling us to swim against against the current in our culture, for sure. Any any questions, comments? Uh, yeah. Something that this points out to me is, in Proverbs talks about the money aspect. Yeah. He's not talking about money mm. so much here. It's mm-hmm. all the other things that we can crave, yeah. greed, right. and um, we don't realize that sometimes. We think greed is, I just want yep. more money. 
Amen. Mm-hmm.